Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're starting all over again. No. Um, the, uh, the insert is in the bulletin. You will not find the text of this morning's sermon on the back of the bulletin. Try as she might, Mandy could not fit nine chapters of Luke onto the back of the insert. So last week, we finished the text of Luke's gospel. Um, we began our study in September of 2015. So it's been three and a half years. 140 total messages. Over 1,100 verses, which by the way, it may seem like a long time to you. We were doing 8.2 verses a week on average, which is not a small chunk. It's just a massively large piece of writing. And so having come to the end of three and a half years in Luke, rather than quickly leaving it, I thought it might be good to do some review. One of the things you can miss when you are going verse by verse is the big picture, the flow of the narrative. And so in two weeks, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'd like to do an overview of Luke's gospel, a review of Luke's gospel, and then for two or three more weeks, cover some major themes in Luke. And then, God willing, we will move on to studying some of the Psalms through the spring and summer. So, Luke's gospel, an overview. And my goal here is that you might be able to sit down and read through Luke, or read through a few chapters, and see some of the flow of the text. Luke wrote um, a gospel account, a historical narrative, and so often we'll approach the Bible as though it's a string of pearls. I love this story, I love this parable, I love this verse, and that's useful, but Luke wasn't writing like that. He was writing a flowing narrative, and so what my goal would be, and I will have achieved that, if you sometime this week might sit down and read through a few chapters of Luke, maybe even all of the first nine, and you can see some of the flow of his narrative. Luke is an excellent writer, and he's inspired by the Spirit. And so, to try to give you some handholds for Luke's gospel, um, I suggest breaking it down into four divisions. First, two we'll look at this morning, and the last two we will look at next week. And the divisions are this. The introduction to the Son of Man... The ministry of the Son of Man, the journey to Jerusalem, and the passion of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself, self-designation, and it's used throughout the Gospel of Luke. Um, And so where we're going to end this morning is the Mount of Transfiguration. It's right after the Mount of Transfiguration that in 951 we read, When the time is fulfilled, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from 951, we are heading to Jerusalem. That's what we'll pick up next week. So I want to suggest for you that up to and culminating at the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke's primary goal is this, to settle for the reader, in the first instance, Theophilus, and then for us, who is the Son of Man, to settle beyond dispute the identity of this Jesus. And we can look at the, uh, the introduction, the first four verses, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things 
you have been taught. So Luke tells us his, his goal in writing is to give certainty to the reader that Theophilus might make up his mind or to have certainty in his mind about who Jesus is and what he did. In this first half, we're looking at who he is. We'll focus more next week on what Jesus did and accomplished. So let's begin. We're just going to move, looking at the big picture, move somewhat quickly. We'll largely just be staying in Luke. I don't believe I'll ask you to turn anywhere else. And let's begin. We just read, point A, the prologue. And Luke's point is that you might have certainty. Luke is one of the most well-researched gospels. It's the largest gospel, and the historical account and detail is, is notable. We'll see at the beginning of chapter 3 a, a very precise time stamp. Luke wants to make it clear these events happened in time and space. They're real. These aren't myths and legends. This is real history of a real man, and Luke wants us to come to a conclusion for who he is. And then the first two chapters of Luke cover the prophetic births of John and Jesus. And I say prophetic for two reasons. One, they fulfill scripture. And second, Luke is very intentional in making it clear that both John the Baptist and Jesus, their, their coming into the world is heralded in ways very similar the prophets of old. They are in a long line of prophets. You just have to think of Sarah or Leah or Hannah, the, the women struggling with fertility in the Old Testament who the Lord opened their womb, Sarah to later age, Hannah as well, the birth of um, Samuel. I was going to say, I kept saying Solomon. I knew that wasn't right. The birth of Samuel. Thank you, Daniel. Help me preach. Um, um, the birth of Samuel, the birth of Isaac, the birth of Judah. And so there is Old Testament precedent for these miraculous and strange births. And of course, Jesus tops all of that with the virgin birth and an angels attending to it. And so what Luke is emphasizing in those birth announcements and birth narratives is this has all the credentials, the ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of Jesus have all the credentials, all the hallmarks, all the verification of Old Testament patterns, as well as fulfilling scripture. And Luke will make it very clear that John the Baptist is the one who fulfills what Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so prophesying over um, his mother Elizabeth, that's exactly what is quoted. Here is the one who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is John the Baptist coming. So Jesus is himself a prophet. We'll see that throughout this narrative. But the Lord sends another prophet to herald him. This is part of the confirmation and witness. A man who is noted as a prophet, John the Baptist, will then point to Jesus and identify him um, so that you have the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the prophetic births of John and Jesus take place through chapter 1 and 2.20. Then... We get Jesus presented and learning in the temple from 2.21 to 52. And here the emphasis is on both the, um, the attention to faithfulness of Mary and Joseph as they do all that the law prescribes, but also Jesus in the temple learning from a young age, a student of the word, um, giving good answers, asking difficult questions, and amazing all who are there. 
Jesus staying behind because he's already identifying himself primarily with his messianic mission and his work in his father's house. And so we get one insight into young Jesus. All the other gospels, he just shows up at 30, 33 years of age. Luke alone gives us this insight into this diligent boy. And the emphasis here, if you look in Luke chapter 2, is on Jesus growing up and growing up well. Look at verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then 52, sort of bookending this section, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Luke's emphasizing this is from a young age, a noble, diligent, wise, faithful young man. Jesus presented and learning in the temple. Then chapter 3 begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist does not have a large presence in Luke's gospel. We get his birth account and announcement. We get chapter 3, and we get some messengers from him in chapter 7. That's it. We don't have any account of his death. That's, That's other gospels. But John the Baptist serves a very important function. And if you look at chapter 3, you'll get one of those time stamps. Again, emphasizing the historicity. Our first time stamp was at the beginning of chapter 2. But here is an even more precise one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitus and Licinius, Tetrarch of Albaline, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so John's um, ministry of preparing Israel for the Messiah was really rather straightforward. It was a ministry of calling Israel to repentance. It was a ministry of calling them to, to mourn their sin, to humble themselves, to come out. And even though they're children of Abraham, even though they are sons and daughters of the promise, to be baptized publicly, indicating their uncleanness, this washing is necessary. And John the Baptist relentlessly with one note, called Israel to repentance. The implication being only the repentant heart, only the humbled heart, only the heart that's aware of sin, grieving for sin, will be in a right state to respond and receive Israel's Messiah when he comes. And so that's John's message. Um, You can see it in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. By the way, Next week, we'll see Luke closes. You can even remember from two weeks ago that everything written about the Christ must be fulfilled, that he must suffer and die and on the third day rise, and that a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name. So Luke's gospel begins with a call to repentance and a promise of forgiveness. Luke's gospel ends with a message going out of repentance and forgiveness, continuity at the bookends of the gospel. And then, after John baptizes Jesus, he sort of moves off the stage, as it were. Jesus shows up, and he is baptized. Pick it up in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so here we get a further testimony to the identity of Jesus. First John the Baptist pointing to him, 
saying that I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his shoe. God the Father testifying, this is my son, and lest anyone think that Jesus was baptized in repentance for his own sins, the Father makes it clear, no, I I delight, I am well pleased in this Jesus, my son. Jesus' baptism is not in repentance for his own sins. And then if you thought John's introduction was elaborate, we get the rest of chapter 3, which is the genealogy of Jesus. And Luke here is emphasizing a number of things. I'll just point out two of them. One, Jesus is a man. He's more than a man. He's not only a man, but he is a man, flesh and blood. And he has a family tree that tracks all the way back to Adam in verse 38. Jesus' genealogy is tracked all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam. And secondly, and more importantly, he is a descendant of David. And This genealogy, we we studied it when we looked at it, doesn't line up exactly with Matthew's. And the reason for that is Matthew gives us um, Joseph's genealogy. And through Joseph, who's Jesus' adopted father, Jesus could get his legal claim to the throne. But the promise to David was very specific. From your own body, the Lord said, I will raise up one after you. And so Jesus' genetic, as we would put it in those terms, connection to David is also essential. And so Mary's genealogy is given here. And so through both parents, one getting the legal right, one getting the descent according to the flesh from his own body, Jesus is the seed of David, the heir of David. And Jesus gets a full genealogy. If you read through the Old Testament, major figures get the same treatment. They get genealogies. And so Jesus being the most major figure, Luke emphasizes his preeminence with this introduction. And then we have Jesus' temptation, beginning in chapter 4. All this setting the stage for his ministry. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and much like Israel before him is tempted in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness where Israel grumbled because they wanted food. It's in the wilderness where Israel put the Lord to the test. And Jesus succeeds where they failed. It's notable that in every instance where the devil tempts him, Jesus responds quoting the book of Deuteronomy, the scriptures that Israel had at that time at their disposal. Jesus makes use of the same resources, and he triumphs where Israel failed. He demonstrates his purity of character, his commitment to his mission. And then the introduction to the Son of Man comes to a close. That's the first section. Luke has established the prophetic backdrop in which Jesus and John the Baptist step into the screen. He establishes the scriptural fulfillment of their births. We've seen a diligent young man growing in favor. We've seen him diligently studying the word. We've heard the father testify to his identity. We've seen him stand up to and succeed in temptation directly from the devil. And now we move into the second portion, the ministry of the Son of Man. And The ministry of Jesus takes place in two phases. Luke sets this up with a programmatic introduction for both of them. The programmatic introduction for the first phase is seen in verse 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, I say it's programmatic because that lets you know the types of things he was doing. And as you read through the next few chapters, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's doing works in the power of the Spirit. He's going to be teaching in their synagogues. The report is going to go out wider and wider. 
and he's going to be glorified by all. That's, that's really my programmatic. These are the types of things we're going to see in the coming chapters. And so when you're reading through Luke, you, you get that Luke is giving us this sort of introduction to a section with a programmatic introduction. And what immediately follows the programmatic introduction is a declaration of purpose, mission. And you're going to see that as well when we get to chapter 8. They parallel nicely. And here is with Jesus going to Nazareth. Just pick it up in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read and he took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. And then he says, that's me. And that's what I'm here to do. And so here, the blank for um, point two, we will go back up to the three blanks by the first phase, is the word mission. Jesus, no, we will. I know Lee's going to hold me to it. Um, and what is the mission? Based on the passage you just read, here's one of the three blanks up at point A. Opening blind eyes. He's to proclaim and give sight to the blind. He's to set captives free. He's going to announce good news. And that's what we're going to see him doing. And so here is the first part of Jesus' mission. He, he reads this passage, and he says, that's me. So get this. This section, the first phase of Jesus' ministry in Luke, begins with a programmatic introduction, quickly followed by a mission statement, citing a passage in Isaiah and saying, that's me. That's what I'm about. He'll do the same thing in chapter 8, where we get a second phase of his ministry. And then as you read through the next few chapters, that's exactly what you see him doing. So you read in verse 31. And he went through Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them. And then in verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So we're seeing Jesus regularly teaching just as Luke said he would. Chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion when the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He was standing by a lake. So Jesus is teaching. But now he's going to do something new. He's going to begin to gather his disciples. And so Luke's going to focus not just on the vague crowd that will be following Jesus, but on particular people in that crowd, particular disciples more committed to him. And so we get the story of Peter, who falls down at his feet in verse 8. Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. In verse 11, when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything. And followed him. So Jesus is beginning to pick up disciples. The same thing is going to happen to Levi in verse 27 and 28. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me and leaving everything. He rose and followed him. So Luke is emphasizing the total commitment of some of these disciples. But another thing is introduced here as well. Not only do we see Jesus' first disciples, but now, and starting in chapter 5... Um, his adversaries, his human adversaries, for most of the book, are introduced. It's the Pharisees. They first show up in the account of the healing of the paralytic. Verse 17. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That ties back to the mission statement. He returned in the power of the Spirit. Now the power of the Lord is with him to heal. Presumably, they're neutral at this point. They've heard some of the report, and they show up. They want to see what's going on. Jesus will offend them. He will offend them through his claim to have the authority to forgive sins. The man, as you remember, is lowered through the roof. Verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, saying, began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in very short order, what we're going to see is the Pharisees are introduced, and then their, their ark is going to get set. They start off grumbling, asking these questions. Jesus heals the man to show he has the authority, that the miracle of the healing of the man is only done to confirm his power to forgive. He's establishing his identity. He's establishing his authority. The miracles of Jesus are not primary. The miracles of Jesus testify to his message. It's interesting. The only reason this man gets healed is because the Pharisees grumbled. So the miracles are always pointing to his message. They're always confirming his message. Jesus is not first and foremost a miracle worker. He's first and foremost in this part of his ministry, a prophet, a preacher. And so he tells the man to get up, and he gets up. The next time we see the Pharisees, and you're going to see the ark, because by, by the middle of chapter 6, they're dead set against Jesus. So they start by grumbling. Then in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. They haven't directly taken it to Jesus yet. Now they're grumbling around the edges. And then they will go a little further in verse 33. They said to him, as they challenge him, and then it all comes to a head in chapter 6 with the man with the withered hand. And here we see their set disposition. We'll just read verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So you see their movement. First, they're just there. Then they're a little offended and they're grumbling. Then they're challenging the disciples. Then they're directly challenging him. Now they're actually out trying to get him. Do you see, do you see the movement as their course is set, as their disposition becomes set? And Jesus masterfully confounds them. He knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And now by 6, 11, the Pharisees' course is set. That's how little time it took for them to go from curiosity to grumbling, to challenging the disciples, to challenging him, to trying to trap him. It will only escalate further. So the Pharisees get introduced here along with Jesus' first disciples. Then Jesus calls and teaches his disciples. So then Luke's next movement is to Jesus actually picking the 12. He goes up in verse 12. In these days he went out 
to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God and he comes down from this all night prayer visual and he calls the 12 and immediately then moves into teaching and we get the great sermon on the plain following where Jesus lays out his ethic, what he expects of his disciples. It begins with blessings and cursings, the Beatitudes, and then it moves to extended teaching on sacrificial love, love of enemy, And it ends with stark warnings about fruitfulness and obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he says in verse 46, and not do what I tell you? What Jesus is doing here, what Luke's having us see him do, is having gathered his disciples, having called them, he is now giving them his ethic, his expectation, the law of Christ, if you will. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to call me Lord, this is what I expect of you. This is the standard I will hold you to. Be fruitful. First disciples, rising opposition to the Pharisees. Then Jesus calls and teaches his disciples. And we get the Sermon on the Plain. I call it the Sermon on the Plain because it's not on a mount, as Matthew is. Now, it is possible some scholars try to harmonize this with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. I think it's far more likely that Jesus gave this type of ethical teaching on many occasions. I'd expect there to be massive similarity and overlap, and I would not expect there to be word-for-word Transference, which is what we see. So to recap, Jesus has begun his ministry. Jesus has taught. He has done mighty works and miracles. A report is going out around him, just like that programmatic introduction indicated. He's gathering an inner band of disciples. He's gathered the 12. His enemies have appeared, and they have solidified in their opposition to him. And then Jesus has just laid out his law, his ethic for his people. Which brings us to the next movement um, in in chapter 7, which is the first time now that we start getting this question, who is Jesus being asked? Who is Jesus It starts with a centurion whose faith amazes Jesus. And what's so amazing about his faith is his understanding of who Jesus is. If you remember, the whole whole point of this is he sends a delegation to Jesus to heal his servant. And the delegation, they think well of him. They say, he is worthy. But when Jesus gets closer, in verse 6, Jesus went to them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and my servant be healed. For I am a man set under authority with soldiers around me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What's so remarkable? This man is demonstrating an awareness of the greatness and the authority of Jesus that no one previously in the gospel, except maybe John the Baptist, has gotten. And so this issue of who is Jesus, well, the centurion apparently thinks he's someone very, very, very important and very, very powerful, able to heal remotely. Then he raises the widow's son, and this is important because you're blank here, who is Jesus? The first major title of Jesus gets introduced in this account. He, he touches the dead body, which should make him unclean. Instead, the dead body comes alive. And I, and I love verse 15. Jesus gave him to his mother. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. First time in Luke's gospel that title is attributed to Jesus. That's going to culminate in the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus, this great prophet, will meet with the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, and have a conversation. But here, for the first time, great prophet is introduced as a title, something to consider about who Jesus is. Also, interestingly, this is the first time Luke clearly gives his opinion an indication of who he thinks Jesus is. Look at verse 13. This is easy to miss. And when the Lord saw her, the narrator has just called Jesus the Lord. So already, who is Jesus? This one that the angels heralded, this one who will deliver Israel from her sins. Well, the people are saying, this is a great prophet. And the narrator has just let slip, he's the Lord. So in chapter 7, this issue of Jesus' identity gets some more information. He is a great prophet and the Lord. But the real culmination of this question of who is Jesus is when John the Baptist sends messengers because he's confused. And so John the Baptist is shown for the reader asking some of the questions that we might ask. John the Baptist expected a certain type of Messiah. Um, Like much of Israel, it would appear John the Baptist expected a geopolitical Messiah, a Messiah who would raise an army, a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans, a Messiah who would establish a kingdom, a Messiah who would triumph and exalt Israel. I do believe Jesus will do all these things, but he first and foremost came to be a savior from sin. In fact, that was the offense given in Nazareth. Remember when he first cited Isaiah and he said, it's fulfilled among you. He was implying those people around them were blind, prisoners. Well, they weren't prisoners in any sort of physical sense. It's spiritual. They're prisoners to sin. They're blind spiritually. And they tried to throw them off a cliff. They didn't like that. That wasn't what they were trying to hear. So Luke has indicated he's the Lord. The crowds are starting to question he's a prophet. Then we get the question from John the Baptist. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So that issue of identity. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. Um, And Jesus is, is very kind and gentle with John. He wants to show the crowd honor to John. And so his response is seen in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases, and plagues, and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go, and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus' response to John is not to explain what he's doing, but simply to say, I am indeed doing the things Isaiah 61 said I would do. That should be good enough for you, John. Presumably it is. So he doesn't explain, no, no, you misunderstood. He simply says, am I not doing the things of the Lord's anointed in Isaiah 61? The blind are receiving their sight, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised up, and the good news, gospel, is being preached to them. And so they go. And so again, as the reader, we're getting further confirmation, Jesus is indeed the one the scriptures predicted and fulfilled. 
That question again of who Jesus is shows up in the encounter with the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a, what? Prophet. See the common theme through this? Crowds raise up, oh, great prophet. John the Baptist, are you the one? This guy, Simon, is the very question he's mulling over. Is, is Jesus indeed a prophet? If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman that is that touching him. For she is a sinner. And of course, if you're a holy and righteous prophet, you don't let the hoi polloi, the sinners, the dirty people touch you. They might contaminate you. They might make you unclean. Jesus will demonstrate whether or not he's a prophet by reading Simon's mind and answering him. And Jesus answered him. I love that. He's thinking to himself, Jesus answered him. If this man, hmm, if this man were a prophet, let me answer your question, Simon. I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This is the second time Jesus is announcing forgiveness, which is a prerogative only God has, for she loved much. Jesus has also just given a stinging indictment to Simon, because what he's basically said is this sinful woman has been more of a host to me than you. You're the homeowner. You're the one who's supposed to give me a greeting. You're the one who's supposed to have a servant wash my feet. She, she's done all these things that you have failed to do. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And again, we start to get further confirmation that what the Pharisees and what the people of Israel were offended by in Jesus were not his miracles. He was very popular with his miracles. They were offended at his very claims of deity, his very claims of authority. And they were offended at his charge that they were unrighteous and sinful. What are they stumbling over? This man claims he has the authority to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, who is Jesus? He is a great prophet, and he is the Lord. And thus ends the first phase of Jesus' ministry. Note now the similarity to how four began with eight. We're going to get another programmatic introduction, and then we're going to get a second emphasis of mission for Jesus, okay? So the second phase, we're going to come back to those two blanks there in just a minute. Let's read the programmatic introduction. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God 
And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Harold's household manager, and Susanna, no, yeah, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So again, this is just telling me he's going through the towns, he's got this group of people with him, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. It's programmatic. Very similar to what we saw in chapter 4. But now, added to Jesus' first ministry emphasis. Remember, he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, that's me. I'm announcing good news. I'm opening blind eyes. I'm setting captives free. That's what I'm doing. Now we're going to learn he's also doing something else. There's a a double edge to his ministry. He's got this light and good news and freedom and forgiveness to give. But he brings in the parables. And that's your blank there. Introduction and explanation of parables. Begins with the parable of the sower. I want to jump down to the discussion with the disciples as to why. I think this is often misunderstood. I'll hear people say, Jesus taught in parables so that everyday common folk could understand him. He used vivid word pictures so that the most simple-minded could track and follow with him. That's not why he says he teaches in parables. Jesus will tell us plainly why he uses parables. And it's the exact opposite. I know this can be tough for us to... Stomach, but it's exactly what he says. Look at verse 9. When the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And he's citing there Isaiah the prophet again, so this time, it's Isaiah's call to ministry in chapter 6. Let me read a little of that to you. Um, verse 8 in Isaiah 6, I hear at ordination services, and people who want to go into pastoral ministry like to cite this. They don't generally quote 9 and 10. I'm going to read 8, 9, and 10 for you in Isaiah 6. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's usually where they stop. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. You say, what on earth is going on? The blank up by the second phase is this, blinding eyes. So Jesus, on the one hand, has a ministry of opening blind eyes, proclaiming good news to the poor, setting captives free, now citing Isaiah again. He says there's a second thing he's doing, and he's blinding some eyes. Now, the explanation for this language, and um, you can go back and, for any of these points, listen to the particular messages, but this one in particular is important. Whenever the Scripture uses language of spiritual sensory deprivement, meaning not real sight, but spiritual sight, spiritual ears, a heart of stone, those types of language. It's a common picture, and it links with idolatry. Let me just read to you um, Psalm 115, 4-8 that makes this connection clear. The logic is this. The idols, again and again, are described as they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear. And the point is they're impotent, they're powerless, they've got painted faces, but they can't do anything. And so when God starts speaking of his people that way, He's calling them idolaters. Listen to Psalm 115, 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. 
They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. He's just described the idols. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So the simple point I'll make here is this. It's a judgment. This is not capricious. This is not arbitrary. In Isaiah's day, God is saying, Israel have worshipped idols. And the light of your message is going to harden them and blind them and set them like they were in stone. This blinding is judicial. This blinding is righteous and right. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm doing that too. I'm doing that too. That's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to polarize Israel. There will be those who love him and adore him and fall at his feet and call him Lord. And there will be those crying out for his death at the cross. And Jesus says, my purpose and my mission is to accomplish both. Yes, I'm Isaiah 61. I'm opening blind eyes. I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. Yes, I am set to reveal, to harden, to blind some in Israel. And that is why he speaks in parables. To hide truth, not to reveal it. The introduction of the parables. Then we begin Jesus' long day. Jesus' long day. And Jesus' long day begins in verse 22 with one day. But you'll note that all the events that happened were given tight sequences. So one day, Jesus is in a boat. And we'll go through this in a minute. He calms the storm. Then, verse 26, then they sail to the country of the Gerizines. Jesus gets out of the boat. Something happens immediately. He gets back in the boat. Verse 40, picks up immediately when they land on the opposite shore. Now when Jesus had returned. And then while he is still speaking, they come and say, your daughter's dead. So the rest of chapter 8 is what's often referred to as Jesus' long day. It's an uninterrupted series of events. And what I want to highlight here is that in Jesus' long day, we see, because we're approaching now, we're, we're in chapter 8. We're approaching the culmination, the answer, finally, of the question with certainty, who is Jesus? And so in a series of miracles, Jesus is seen as being sovereign over nature in 22 through 25 as he calms the storm. The disciples are in awe. Verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? They were afraid. These are sailors. They know what storms can do. And this had to be a pretty terrifically terrible storm for sailors to think they're about to die. They would recognize it rightly. And they said, who then is this? See the questions ringing through this section of who then is this? Who are you? This man were a prophet, the disciples of John. That's the, the echoing question throughout these early chapters of Luke is who is this? Well, this is one who has power over nature. Then in a, another stunning display of power, a man with a legion of demons, enough that they can inhabit thousands of pigs, comes. And as soon as Jesus sets foot on land, immediately totally surrenders, falls prostrate on the ground in front of him and says, Lord, what have I to do with you? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. So we get strong confirmation that a legion of demons understands an unopposable sovereign force has just landed. And the only rational move is surrender and plead for some form of mercy. This, this, this guy must be pretty important. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over demons. Next, he's sovereign over disease. 
He's, he's caught, as soon as he gets back on the other side of the lake, um, the crowd welcomes him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jesus went, the people pressed him around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years that she had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So Jesus is sovereign over nature. Jesus is sovereign over demons. Jesus is sovereign over disease, disease that no doctor can cure. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe. And he's going to raise her from the dead. Jesus is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over de- demons. He's sovereign over disease. He's sovereign over death. All of this in Jesus' long day. Stacking up his power and his authority. The miracles, again, testifying to who he is. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus also has authority to grant, to bequest, to entrust He called the 12 together and gave them power. We've just seen how much power he has. How much power does Jesus have? Power over nature, over demons, over disease, over death. And he has power to give and grant. And now he's multiplying his ministry. He gave them power over all demons and to cure disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And not only does he have power to give, then he's going to work probably the most notable miracle short of the cross. It shows up in all four Gospels. It's the feeding of 5,000 people. Possibly more if they're only numbering the heads of households. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. He, He will host a feast in a desolate place. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, just as the programmatic text at the beginning of 8 said he was doing. Now the day began to wear away. The 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. Go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're able to go buy food for all these people, for there are about five thousand men, possibly many more if they had their children or wives with them. He said, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each, and they did so. He had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. And this this man who has come, this prophet, the Lord, is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over disease. He's sovereign over death. He has power to grant. And he has power, unlimited power, to sustain and give life. By the way, That question the disciples asked, the question the disciples asked, who is this? That's your blank there, Jesus' long day, who is this? They asked that in verse 
25. Upon hearing of Jesus' multiplication of his ministry and sending the 12 out, Herod asked the same question. Look at verse 7, chapter 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Luke puts that question in the disciples' mouth. He puts that question in Herod's mouth. He's, we're about to get our firm and final answer. And Luke's been scattering this around his text. I just want you to see as you read through it that the emphasis, who is this? John the Baptist, who are you? Or should I, are you the one or should I search for another? And Luke's been providing again and again demonstrations of that answer. It's going to culminate right here in verse 18, immediately following the grand miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, it happened, verse 18, that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? See, the, the, the question that's been echoing through the chapters is now coming to a head. And Peter's going to get an A-plus on his answer. Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer, by the way, the, the blank here is this next section, the revelation of the Son of Man. Now we're going to get full answers. I'm going to get more information than even that. There's going to be an unveiling of Jesus' identity and his mission. It's going to culminate at the Mount of Transfiguration. So here we get Peter's great confession. You are the Christ of God. And again, Christ is just Greek transliterated from the Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Messiah, from which we get Messiah, which in English means anointed. So Jesus is the anointed of the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ is English, uh, Hebrew, and Greek for the exact same thing. You are the Lord's, the Christ of God. And so Peter has come to this conclusion. You are the promised Messiah. And in response to that right answer, Jesus is going to give him a whole lot more, and us, by extension, reading a whole lot more information. You are the Messiah. Because now, in response to this, Jesus is, um, the next blank here, will first now speak of his death and resurrection. If you've never read the gospel story before, if you didn't know what happened up to this point, there's no indication of a death and a resurrection that's going to be at the end of the story. But here now, for the first time, and it's a sort of secret information, it's just for the 12, basically only those who've come to believe he's the Messiah are ready for this, and he strictly charged and commanded them, telling them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So having come to the conclusion, he is the Christ of God now, but, but I'm a Christ who's going to suffer and die and be raised. Jesus speaks for the first time of his death and resurrection. Jesus also now reveals the true cost of discipleship. This will be a major theme of the journey to Jerusalem. And now he clearly spells it out. Verse 23, probably one of the harder passages in the Bible. Notice the all-inclusive language. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And when Jesus said this, crosses weren't pieces of jewelry. 
They were torturous instruments of death by which the scum of the earth were killed. And that's all it meant. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Those are the stakes. This isn't just a call to discipleship. This is life and death. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So it comes to a head here with Peter giving the right answer. You are the Christ of God. Then Jesus revealing, I'm a Christ who is going to suffer and die and rise. And my disciples are going to follow in my footsteps of suffering. And then Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, which is where we will end our time. Having finally, I think, in Luke's gospel, resolved the question of who is Jesus, and and now for the first time getting an idea of what he will do, what to expect in the second half of the book, what his disciples should expect and be prepared for if they will follow him, to punctuate this, to, to, to end any dispute of the identity of Jesus, The Father, God himself, will speak from heaven confirming the identity of Jesus. Now about eight days after these sayings, 28, he took with him Peter, John, and James. He went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. This this great prophet is speaking with the two major Old Testament scripture writers and prophets what are they speaking about? His departure. In the ESV has a footnote, literally his exodus. Um, and I don't have time to go to it now, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Jesus is the prophet greater than and like Moses. And he too will have an exodus. He will deliver his people from slavery. And then... The Father himself glorifies and testifies to Jesus' true identity. As the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter constantly speaks when he doesn't know what he's saying. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. That's Davidic language. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. This is Psalm 2. So the father identifies Jesus as his son. In doing so, he identifies him as the Davidic heir, the great Messiah king. My chosen one, which links Jesus with the the servant Psalms in, in Isaiah, and then listen to him, which links him as the great prophet like Moses. Remember, Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak all that I command, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So that listen to him. This is the one. This is finally the prophet like Moses. So on the mount, God the Father speaks. This is the Davidic king, my son. This is the suffering servant from Isaiah, my chosen one. And this is the great prophet like Moses. And we have God the Father's word for it. Bringing it to a crescendo as the identity of Jesus for the reader should absolutely be set. And then afterwards, we have the aftermath. Jesus comes down. The disciples are unable to cast the demon out of a young man, which obviously led to them discussing who is the greatest. They do this twice in the gospel, both at times that demonstrate their supreme ignorance. Here, just after Jesus 
gives them the Lord's Supper and predicts his suffering. They're, they're again debating who's the greatest. And so we see a picture of a point three. While Jesus prepares to head to Jerusalem and suffer, the disciples argue over their greatness. You see a picture of Jesus alone, misunderstood. He's, he's got his head wrapped around where he's going. And he's vexed by this. Look at verse 41. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And that is where we'll pick up next week in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So in summary, um, the first nine chapters of Luke, Luke is, a, is trying to give us certainty about the identity of his son. And he's demonstrated again and again and again. The scriptural fulfillment, the prophetic shoes he fills, the the testimony of John, the testimony of the miracles, the testimony not once but twice of God the Father, culminating in Peter's confession, you are the Christ of God, which is crescendoed by God the Father, identifying him as the king and the prophet and the suffering servant. And so if you've been with us on this journey for the last three and a half years, or if this is your first Sunday here, I would just challenge you to settle in your own mind, who is this man? That you would agree with Peter and the scripture and those of us in this body. This is the son of God and the son of man. This is David's Lord and David's son. This is the prophet like Moses. This is the one who would redeem Israel from her sins. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us so many testimonies to the glory of your son. You have testified in so many ways that we are without excuse. May we receive him and love him. May we be those whose eyes are open, not those who are blinded. May we be those who love and forsake all to follow him. May we be those who receive the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.